Mark 8, 22 through 9-1. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray together. Jesus, there are some beautiful words in this passage of your identity, your power. God, and there are some sobering words words in this passage about what you have called us to. God, but your identity, who you are and what you have done is deeply connected to who we are and what you have called us to do, what you have called us, the way you've called us to live. And so Lord, I pray that your grace and your peace would be upon us today. I pray that your spirit would be upon us, Lord. And as we receive potentially challenging, potentially difficult truths, that we would receive them by faith, because God, you are the one who has given your life for us. And Lord, it's our desire to follow you. And so would you teach us today? Lord, would you lead us in our time together? And God, if there's anyone here who does not yet know you or does not see you clearly, God, would you open our eyes? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Expectations can be a dangerous thing. If your expectations are too high, you risk disappointment. If your expectations are too low, you risk actually saying no to something that might be a great opportunity. And so much conflict in our lives actually come from conflicting expectations. Come from, it comes from our own expectations. One of the most common sources of difficulty in a marriage 
are conflicting expectations between a husband and a wife. There's an excellent book on marriage written by a man named Paul Tripp, and I love the title. It's called, What Did You Expect? (laughs) Struggling in your marriage? What did you expect? Difficulty making decisions together? What did you expect? Did you expect that your sin and brokenness plus your spouse's sin and brokenness would somehow equal zero sin and brokenness? What did you expect? And then you add children to the mix, which are just little mirrors reflecting your sin and brokenness back into your face. What did you expect? When it comes to conflicting expectations, it's not necessarily about right or wrong. It's just preferences and and expectations that we have developed from our own histories. I will never forget the first time I celebrated Christmas with my wife's family. See, there are two ways for families to open presents on Christmas morning. There is the free-for-all, every man, woman, and child for themselves just ripping into packages And then there's the proper way to open presents. (laughs) One by one, allowing every person and every gift to have their moment to enjoy not just the the experience, but like the look on the face. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm joking. I'm talking about, right? It's me too, right? I was like, no, what's, no way. I want to watch this one. I want to watch you open that. I don't know what to do with myself. And so uh, there is no, it's not about right or wrong. It's about the conflict of our expectations that, that we have just from our childhood, that we, that we experience things that we want to perpetuate, and we experience things that we don't like, that we want to get rid of. And so we come together into marriage or into a relationship or friendships or into our career, whatever it is, and we start to experience things that are different than we expected. And there's conflict, and it's not necessarily about right or wrong. It's just different. And in the first century, the Jewish people had many hopes and expectations about the Messiah. They had many hopes and expectations that were born out of their history as God's people. Some of these expectations were rooted in Scripture. But many of them were also born out of their history of 400 years of oppression under foreign nations. And so by the time Jesus begins his ministry, the title Messiah or Christ in the Greek, was pregnant with expectations that came more from what people wanted to see happen than what God had actually promised would take place. And so in our text, we see that our false expectations will interfere with our experience of God. We're now coming to a turning point in Mark's gospel. The first half of the gospel was focused on Jesus' messianic authority to restore a fallen and and broken world. And though they were witnesses of incredible uh, things that that pointed to Jesus' identity, they were witness to his miracles, to his his authoritative teaching, there was still, uh, the entire story is laden with opposition from the religious leaders, opposition from the Pharisees, and these heartbreaking misunderstandings that the, that the disciples are having. But little by little, despite their misunderstandings, the disciples persist in following Jesus. And so we have this, this, this idea in, uh, it, that, that we can somehow sometimes carry with us that in order to follow Jesus, in order to be a disciple, we need to look at the disciples in Scripture. But so often, they, they, they get it wrong. 
And so we need to be reminded that the only true model for discipleship is Jesus himself. And it's him that we're following. And, but I don't want to miss out on the opportunity that we have to see the disciples and see that they do actually give us uh, uh, a model for how to follow Jesus despite our failures, despite our misunderstandings. They continue to follow Jesus. And so in our lives, we can look to the disciples and say, if they got it wrong, if they messed up, but Jesus continued to be patient with them, then you can know too that when you get it wrong, when you mess up, that Jesus continues to be patient with you and he invites you to continue following And so little by little, their eyes are being opened to who Jesus is. They're beginning to see, but they don't yet see clearly. And so it's in this context that we understand this two-stage healing of the blind man. It's this bridge between the first and second halves of the gospel. It functions as a reflection back to the disciples' partial understanding along the way. And it also points forward to Peter's partial confession that we'll get to in this passage. And ultimately, it gives hope that the disciples will one day see clearly when Jesus is raised from the dead. So though Mark uses this story as kind of a, it's like a living parable. It's, it's a parable taking place right before their eyes. He uses it to describe their spiritual blindness, but it's at the same time, it's much more than just a rhetorical device. See, this miracle is the linchpin in Jesus' messianic identity. This healing is what the disciples needed to see in order to be sure. Isaiah prophesied that when the kingdom of God came, when the kingdom of God came, that the blind would receive their sight and the deaf would hear. And so last week, if you remember, a deaf man's hearing was restored and now here a blind man's sight is restored. And so upon witnessing this healing, the disciples are ready to answer the most important question that Jesus will ever ask them. And it's the same question. It's the most important question that we must ask ourselves. Who is Jesus? See, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? The disciples have heard the rumors. They know the talk that's going around about him. The people had a lot to say about Jesus. Some, like King Herod, said that he's John the Baptist back from the dead. This is why all of these powers are at work within him. Others say that he might be one of the prophets of old. You see, there was this expectation that Elijah would come back and that Elijah would prepare the way for the coming kingdom. Perhaps Jesus was was this Elijah proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and preparing people to receive their king. Maybe he was one of the other prophets because Jesus' authoritative teaching style, his commitment to proclaiming the kingdom of God and calling people to faith and repentance was very characteristic of the prophets of old in scripture. And so the things that Jesus is saying and doing, it demanded that the people wrestle with his identity. You see, Jesus cannot be ignored. There are many perspectives about Jesus in the world, past and present, and I'm sure there will be more perspectives of Jesus in the future. But one thing that Jesus has never been, one thing that Jesus can never be is inconsequential. We cannot ignore him. We must wrestle with who he is and what he has done. Likewise today, there are many 
perspectives on Jesus. The world has a lot to say about him. The perspectives on Jesus range everywhere from being a mythical, fictional character to God himself and everywhere in between. Islam believes that Jesus is a great prophet, second only to Muhammad. Many people in Islam actually believe that Jesus was the only sinless prophet. They have a a very high view of him, but they do not believe what the scriptures say about him. The Buddhists believe that Jesus is Buddha-like. It's called a bodhisattva. It's someone who embodies the teachings of the Buddha and actually is able to attain nirvana, but they sacrifice nirvana so that they can bring comfort to those who are suffering in the world. They have a very high regard for Jesus, but they do not believe what the scriptures say about him. Some today will say that Jesus is a good moral teacher. Some may say that he's a social revolutionary. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, calls him a sorcerer. Just evidence that even outside of the Bible, people are, are, are making the claim that Jesus did miraculous things. So he calls him a sorcerer. So who is he? Is he the blonde haired, blue eyes, all American Jesus? Is he the the eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus perpetually in Mary's arms? Is he the, the gentle Jesus always cuddling a little lamb? Who is Jesus? Maybe you like the History Channel's ever-changing perspective on Jesus. Every show you watch, there's a new thing. I think their kick now is that Jesus was an alien. It's like get in touch with Jesus, alien origins. History Channel for you. Various philosophies and world religions and people throughout the ages have weighed in on the question, who is Jesus? And one of the most incredible things about this is the fact that this man 2,000 years ago still cannot be ignored. As much as anyone would try to, Jesus cannot be ignored. He can never be inconsequential, and we know this. We all must wrestle with who he is. But what truly matters for Jesus is not public opinion. What Jesus wants to get at is the disciples' personal conviction. And so after hearing the different perspectives, he asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And so Peter responds on behalf of the disciples and says, you are the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is the one that they have been waiting for. And so for the disciples and for us, this title, Christ, can be packed with meaning, and misconceptions. Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's a title, right? He is Jesus the Christ. And the word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And both words simply mean anointed one. And though both of these words have become a technical term today, the Old Testament does not use it as a title for a specific individual or a specific role, whether past, present, or future. See, throughout the Old Testament, there are many anointed ones. The king was referred to as the Lord's anointed. Priests were anointed by God to perform their tasks in the temple. However, there were seasons in Israel's history, for instance, like the exile, when the Israelites had no king on their throne and they had no access to the temple and there were no anointed ones functioning in the community. And so the prophets first saw that one day a person would come 
who would usher in God's kingdom and usher in God's presence once and for all. That he would be anointed with the spirit of God to accomplish the work that God had given him to do. And so the people waited for this anointed one. They waited for this Messiah. Or as Mark's gospel was primarily written to Christians in Rome, he uses the language that they would be familiar with. They're waiting for the Christ. And so Peter says, this is who you are. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that has been anointed by God to usher in the kingdom of God. Now check this out. Peter's words literally are correct. They're true. They are 100% right on. Jesus is the Christ. This is who he is. And Peter is accurate. But Peter's expectations of what this means is a long way off. He, along with many people in Jesus' day, expected something specific from Messiah. They expected that the Christ would come and that he would destroy the Romans. This is what they anticipated. But Jesus here, after this profession of faith, he teaches them that he is not going to be the victorious military leader that they all anticipated he would be. Instead, he is the son of man who would suffer at the hands of their own religious leaders. The the people that were called to shepherd them into obedience and worship of God would actually be the ones who would bring opposition and oppression and violence on Jesus and that he would be destroyed by his own people. But three days later, he would be raised from the the dead. And so Peter, his words are true, right? He's beginning to see. He's like the blind man in the text. He sees partially, but his expectations are getting in the way. Church, in the same way, our expectations can get in the way of believing who Jesus is, not only in title, but in what he would do and what he has called us to do. It interferes with our experience of who he truly is, and it interferes with our experience of our worship of him. We need to not only be aware of who Jesus is, but we need to be honest about our expectations of him. See, if the most important question that we need to ask is, who is Jesus? Then we also need to ask ourselves another important question, which is, what do you expect from Jesus? We need to be very honest about our expectations of what Jesus does as the Christ. See, this concept of a suffering Messiah causes such an offense to Peter that he actually takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Can you picture this? They have been following Jesus He's been announcing the presence of the kingdom of God that has come in him. He is performing signs and wonders with with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He has come and he has healed people. The deaf receive their hearing. The blind receive their sight. The lepers are cleansed. The sick are healed. He is performing these incredible things by the hand of God, casting out demons and and besting all of the, the top religious leaders in debate. He is the Christ. And then Peter takes him aside and says, you'll never die. 
How dare you, Jesus, talk like this? You are the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs win. And Peter, as as, as Jesus looks and he sees the disciples watching Peter take him aside and rebuke him, Jesus speaks up and he says, get behind me, Satan. So Jesus tells Peter that his expectations are not from God. His expectations are from man. In fact, they are so contrary to God's plan, so contrary to Jesus' mission, that Jesus says that they are, in fact, satanic. He has the proper confession, but because of his expectations, he is actually in danger of opposing the work of God. Now, many have asked, did Jesus really call Peter Satan? Or was Peter in this moment somehow possessed by Satan? Now, the the word Satan uh, is is not originally a name. It's not originally a, a title. The word Satan simply means one who opposes. So while not originating as a proper name or as a title, the word Satan has become the title or the name used to describe the leader of the demonic opposition against God. He is opposing God along with all of of his his, uh, minions are opposing God's work. And so he rightfully bears the title, the Satan. That he is the one opposing the work of God. And so Jesus is not necessarily referring to Peter as the devil himself. But he is saying that because of his expectations and because of his hopes and dreams and desires, because they are more influenced by ideas that oppose God rather than ideas that come from God himself, they are demonic, they are satanic, and they must not be allowed to persist. And so he says, get behind me, get out of my way. You are interfering with what God has ordained to take place since before the foundation of the world. Get behind me. And so we see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. He is the the, the one whose name is the only name under heaven by which men and women must be saved. But whether we know it or not, there is a whole host of expectations that we could be carrying with us about what Jesus will do for us and what he has called us to do. And we have to take great care that our expectations actually align with the truth, that actually align align with who Jesus is and what he accomplished, or else we too are in danger of confessing the truth about Jesus, but also missing out on the blessing because we are looking for the wrong things. And so unless our expectations are informed by God and his word, we may actually know what is right and yet be misled. And like Peter, we may know what is right. We may make a literally accurate confession, but then in the end be found to be opposing God. How sobering is this? Peter is the first person in the gospel. You are the Christ. Jesus agrees but because of his expectations, he's actually found to be in opposition to what Jesus is doing. That's a danger for us. That we can say, yes, Jesus, I believe that this title applies to you. But because I have expectations of the way you should work in my life, and because I have expectations of the way my life should look, 
And because I have expectations of the comforts that I should have the rights to or the pleasures that I am entitled to, I can actually be found to be opposing the one who I just declared was Messiah. And so maybe you're here today and you agree that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is God's anointed. He is the Savior of the world. You believe that all of these things are literally true. But if by Savior, you mean that Jesus came and died, and so sin doesn't matter anymore, because everyone has been forgiven, and so therefore you can live as you please, you're wrong. Your expectations are wrong. What you believe Jesus accomplished is wrong. And so you can make an accurate profession and actually be wrong. Even though your confession of his identity is accurate, your expectations are in opposition to the gospel since you effectively nullify the need for faith. Jesus and and the early church, they told people to, to believe, to put your faith in Jesus, that this is what you must do to be saved. But if we believe that Jesus died, everyone's sins are forgiven. Everyone is getting into heaven. You actually nullify their words. You nullify the need for faith. Many expect Jesus to live by their own definitions of love. Right? If Jesus loves me, then that means he accepts everything I do and he affirms every decision that I make and he approves of every lifestyle choice I live by because he loves me. And so you may accept Jesus as the Christ and yet there is no longer any need for you to live a holy life. And so these people that believe that Jesus loves them and and approves of them regardless of what they do, and it's okay, just winks at sin, sweeps it under the rug, says, I got you, brother, I got you, sister, you can live however you want because I just just love you so much. Oh, oppress that person, I just love you so much. Hurt that person, lie to that person, it's okay because I love you. But I, I obviously, I don't love that person that you're doing that to. Otherwise, it wouldn't be okay. But I love, I love you. So just continue. And so you may accept Jesus as the Christ, and, and there's no need to transform your life. There's no need to live holy as he is holy. And so uh, this grace and love becomes a license to sin rather than being the power to set us free from sin. On the flip side, maybe what you expect of Jesus is that every mistake you make, every little sinful thought or, or thing that pops into your head that doesn't align with absolute perfection, maybe what you expect is Jesus' disappointment and scorn and rejection. So you may be accepting Jesus as the Christ and yet you re- functionally regard yourself as his enemy. Functionally believing that he is intent on rejecting you. And in fact, he came to save you. See, we can't have this expectation of Jesus that he's not going to treat sin with severity. Right? He died on the cross. God had to die to forgive us of our sin. It is that bad. But we also, on the flip side, can't live these lives thinking that he's just out to get us. Out to destroy us because we're not good enough. See, our expectations of him affect the way we live. 
We can say you are the Christ, but if our expectations don't align with who he is and what he has done, we're wrong. A real problem for the church in our country is this idea that Jesus, as the Messiah, came to help us achieve the American dream. That all he wants for us is to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and comfortable, and our lives full of luxury, and abundant finances, and the best food, and all of these things. And so Jesus has has come to help you achieve the American dream. And so Jesus' command here in this passage to pick up your cross and follow him has no place. There's no category in our minds if we believe that all Jesus wants for us is to be happy and comfortable and safe and wealthy. And so how do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with the problems that we experience? There is no category for picking up our cross and following him. This is why so many Christians are disappointed with God today. So many people walk away from the church, walk away from faith, walk away from Jesus and are disappointed, frustrated, and angry because they believe that by trusting in Jesus, their lives should be easier. They believe that because they prayed for comfort and wealth that they're entitled to their desires. And so you hear people saying things like this, I tried Jesus for a while, but he didn't work for me. Maybe we should stop trying to get Jesus to work for us and recognize that he's the king of kings and lord of lords and we work for him. Jesus does not work for you. He saved you. And so our entire lives are submitted to him. Are your expectations interfering with your experience of Jesus? Gosh, church, we gotta ask this question. Are our expectations interfering with our experience of Jesus? Are our expectations of church interfering with our experience of worship? Are our expectations of marriage interfering with our experience of marriage? Are our expectations of, 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 of Jesus actually interfering with our ability to experience him as he is. See, Jesus will actually exceed the disciples' expectations. He is greater than they could possibly imagine, but he is not what they expected. And so Peter rebukes him. He rebukes Jesus because he expected Jesus to defeat the Romans. But Jesus came to defeat sin, Satan, and death. He he, he rebukes Jesus because he expected Jesus to sit on the throne of Israel. But Jesus came to hang on a Roman cross. He expects Jesus to be the savior of the Jews. But he came to be the savior of the world. And ultimately, Jesus is rebuked by Peter because Peter expects him to improve their lives. But he came to give them a new life. He is greater than their expectations. But the implication of his identity is not what they were hoping for. And so what are you expecting from Jesus? What do you expect him to do in your life? You can say all the right things, but if your expectations are misaligned, then not only will they interfere with your experience of him, it will actually interfere with who you are becoming. It will interfere with what he desires for your life. It will interfere with your transformation. It will interfere with your sanctification. It will interfere with you becoming like him because Jesus didn't come to just give us a bunch of blessings. He came to make us like himself. He came so that we could be transformed and reflect him to the world. And so if you are a Christian, do you know who you are becoming? Who are you becoming? This is one of the most beautiful truths 
about following Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven, not only do we receive a new identity, not only do we receive eternal life because of what he has done, but by his grace, when we follow him, we are becoming like him, whoever you are. However you feel about yourself, whatever sins and temptations you are struggling with, this is the truth, pure and simple, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, and this new life that you live is being conformed to the image of Jesus. But we have to be mindful of our expectations. We have to be mindful of how we think that is going to take place, because becoming like Christ isn't confined just to our morality, It's not confined just to our beliefs or just to the the power that we have by the Holy Spirit or the ability to heal or do miraculous things because the Spirit gives spiritual gifts or any other pleasant thing. We are being conformed to his image, not only in what he is able to do, but in what was done to him. You see, we are becoming like Christ, not only in his life, but also in his death. We are called to become like Christ, not only in his life, but also in his death. Just as Jesus knew everything that he would suffer, he warns the disciples that if they follow him, they too will also suffer. They have to be prepared to pick up their cross and to follow him. And we have to be prepared to do the same. You must be prepared. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him. Now, this doesn't mean that we just need to be prepared to die physically, but we must be prepared to deny ourselves day by day, moment by moment, to carry around in ourselves the crucifixion of our lives, the crucifixion of our desires, the crucifixion of our expectations. We must be prepared to sacrifice those expectations and hopes and dreams in order to pursue the glory that Jesus has, has, has given us from heaven. We have to be willing to deny ourselves. Jesus says, if anyone would, would uh, uh, seek to save their lives, they will lose it. But if they seek to lose their lives for my sake and for the gospels, they will save it. If we lay down our lives and lose our rights to comfort and lose our entitlement to power and control over our lives or over those around us, if we sacrifice our our right to glory in this world, then we will receive a far superior life. We will receive a far superior glory and a far superior eternity than we could ever ever achieve for ourselves. Ultimately, the life that Jesus wants us to find and receive is his life. He wants us to experience his life. He wants us to experience his glory. He wants us to experience his freedom and his love and his joy and truly know what it means to live. Ultimately, what he wants us to experience is that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, as the scriptures say. And it will be Christ's image who we're being conformed to day by day, moment by moment, as we seek to live not for ourselves, but for Jesus and the kingdom of God that has come in him. And so what we believe about Jesus, it matters. Because what we believe about him will influence our expectations of him. It will influence our experience of him. It it influences our worship. And ultimately, we will become like the one we worship. 
James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And in it, he says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. If we worship Jesus as he is, then we will become like Jesus as he is. But if we're following a false version of Jesus that the world has made up to make Jesus less countercultural and less offensive, then we will become like that version of Jesus completely irrelevant and ineffective in our engagement with culture. See, the world makes this picture of Jesus that they can just kind of fit nicely into the rest of the world. And so the version of that we will become is one that just kind of like hides over there in the shadows. You go to church on Sunday, that's fine, but don't, don't ever tell me about what you think is truth. We'll be ineffective and irrelevant. If our version of Jesus is this weak, convictionless softy who just wants you to follow your heart, then you're never going to become anything different than you already are. You will only become more rigidly you. There's no transformation in that. But if Jesus is the suffering servant, if he's the one who conquers sin, Satan, and death by living a sinless life and dying on the cross and raising from the dead, then by following him and by learning from him and imitating him, then we will become like him as he is. I had a heartbreaking conversation with a man several months ago who was a practicing Buddhist, and he was talking about how in the, the Buddhist religion there is this concept of bodhisattva. I mentioned it earlier. It's this, this person that is enlightened and embodies the teachings of the Buddha and is actually able to attain nirvana, but they sacrifice nirvana for the sake of remaining on earth and caring for those who are suffering and vulnerable. And so he said, we believe that Jesus is a bodhisattva, that he is a little Buddha. And I was like, man, that's so interesting, you know, that people, they have to grapple with Jesus. They have to, they have to make sense of him because he was so, so amazing and beautiful and so different than those around him. You have to wrestle with him. And he said, he said, why don't, why doesn't Christianity have like Jesus sattvas? And I thought for a second, I said, they do. And he said, well, who are they? And I said, they're Christians. And he was like, yeah, but Christians don't seek to like, like embody Jesus' teaching and, and Jesus' way of life. And my heart literally broke. That that is what the world sees. Oh, you believe in Jesus, but you're not seeking to embody his way of life. But that's exactly what Jesus says we should be doing. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We embody his teaching. We embody his way of life. As he carried his cross, so do we. As he lives a life of compassion and love and service, not entitled to using his divine power for his own comfort, but he sets it aside and humbles himself. That's what we're called to do. To not be entitled to the things that we can pry from the world's hands but to lay all of those things aside and live like Jesus, a life of love and compassion and self-sacrifice. 
See, this denying ourselves doesn't mean that we actively pursue pain and suffering like some weird masochists. It means that we pursue Jesus, that we pursue him in honesty, that we pursue him in truth, that we pursue him as he is and seek to live as he lived compassionately and self-sacrificially, which means we also seek to announce the presence of the kingdom of God that has come in Christ and that we invite people to respond to the good news through faith and repentance. And when we do that, just like Jesus, opposition will come to us just like Jesus. It's what landed him on the cross. It was his compassion and love for all people, not just the religious elite. It was his invitation to the blessings of the messianic kingdom of God that he extended to the Gentiles that upset the religious leaders. It was his love for all people, not just those who deserved it, that brought opposition to him. It landed him on the cross. And so this kind of life that is shaped by the cross will bring rejection to us from those around us. But at the same time, as we follow him in his suffering, the apostle Paul says, if we carry in our bodies the death of Christ, then we will also receive the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. See, the reason that we can face this opposition, the reason that we can lay our lives down, the reason that we can live self-sacrificially, the reason we don't need to fear rejection is because we already have been accepted by God in the gospel. The reason that we don't fear death is because we have already been given the resurrection of our bodies from the dead. And this resurrection power is not available to us just at the end of our lives. It is available to you today. Jesus says that we do not need to taste death before we see the kingdom of God coming with power. We will certainly see the kingdom of God coming with power when Jesus Christ returns, but we see it Every time his people sacrifice themselves and live for the good of others, that live to love others, that lay down their rights, lay down their comfort to bring comfort to others. They see it in his people when we reflect him in the way that we live. But when we believe him as he truly is, and we receive from him what he truly accomplished and follow him in the way that he lived, we will not only experience eternal life in the future, but we actually become like him and experience eternal life today. And we actually reveal his glory to the world around us. Do you believe that Jesus wants you to be like him? Jesus wants to make you like him. That's beautiful. That's, that's outlandish. That what God has done, what he wants to do in your life is to actually make you more and more every day like Jesus. And he does so by when we remember who he is and we declare his identity and truth and we, and we remember what he has accomplished by receiving through faith the promise of God, that, that there, is, there is glory for those who give up their lives today. They will receive it in the end. And so we receive through faith the promise that it is through laying down our lives that we find true life. It's not by struggling for all, the world, all that the world can offer us because the world's passing away. 
The glory that you can get from this world will die just like the rest of it. It won't last. We receive everything that Jesus offers, though it may not be what we would choose for ourselves, but by the Holy Spirit, he is making us to become something far more beautiful and glorious than we can possibly imagine. And so today, we put our trust in Jesus. We turn aside from our false expectations and we follow him as he is. And if you do this, if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and you turn from your false expectations and you trust in him as he truly is and allow him to lead you into a life of, of, of self-denial, self-sacrifice, living for the good of others, living for the glory of God instead of your own good and instead of your own glory, then you will watch your life transform by the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out and you will be amazed as those around you actually see the kingdom of God, the glory of God breaking into their world through you as you seek to carry your cross and follow Jesus and live in light of what he has done for you to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, this is what we want. God, in our flesh, what we really want is our own glory. But God, we believe that you are who you say you are, that you've done what the scriptures say that you have accomplished, and we receive you in truth, we receive you in honesty, we receive you in humility, and God, we want to be those who by faith deny ourselves, lay down our own glories for the sake of the, 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 the love and, and compassion and good that you want to bring into the world, and ultimately, we do it for the sake of your glory so that people will see that the name of Jesus is above every other name. God, you are so worthy. You are so beautiful. You are so glorious. And you've given yourself to us. God, if we've received you, what is our lives? What, are, what, what do our lives amount to? What do our desires amount to? What can we possibly do for ourselves when we have everything that you have done for us? God, I pray that you would help us to stop striving for our own glory and that you would help us to see the beauty of picking up our cross and following you. Jesus, ultimately, your, your crucifixion was your enthronement. It was your moment of glory. At the height of your suffering is when you were revealed most glorious. And so, God, I pray that you would remind us that when we suffer, when we deny ourselves, when we lay down our lives, though it feels like death, you actually say that we reign with you, that we rule and reign with you through what you have suffered. God, I pray that the world would see who you are in your beauty, in your truth, and that we would follow you regardless of the cost. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.